beginning with verse 15 today is where the, our new section starts. But we're going to understand what the author of Hebrews is telling us. We're, we're going to go back to 12 verse 1 and just go through this and see what is the Spirit telling the churches? What, what is the point here? Because he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now, who are those people? That's people from chapter 11. It's all the Old Testament saints that he said, you know, all these people by faith did the things that you see them do in the Old Testament. Amazing things, miraculous things, fateful things. But what they, how they did that wasn't because of something within themselves that made them super people, but it was their faith. And he says, you have faith, so you can accomplish great things through Christ too. Their faith is what set them apart. Therefore, Faith is what's important to you. And since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the theme of Hebrews. Run the race with endurance. Um, it's a race. And it is to be run. And guess what the third thing is? It is to be run with endurance. And you don't need to endure anything that you just love. If it's something that you're loving, it doesn't require endurance. You just hope it never ends. So the author, the author of Hebrews here, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to this church through this letter. He's also speaking to this church in this letter, and he's saying, "I know you're going through suffering." The church that the book was, the letter was originally written to, was going through persecution because of Christ. And what he's telling us here is, we all go through struggles, we all go through trials, we all go through different things. And if persecution is what we face, then this letter is wonderful for us. But life is a race, not to try to get ahead of other people, but as Paul said, to finish the race of faith. It's against ourselves. So that as we have this marathon, this long life, we're called to endurance. And you can do it by faith. Look at all these Old Testament saints. They did it through faith. So one of the things you need to do is, if you're running... Oh, this is where I should have brought my, what's it called? The ball and chain. Should have brought my ball and chain. I love my ball. It's perfect time for my ball and chain that I got for Christmas. Uh, yeah, you don't run with these weights on you. You, you, um, you, you want to have as little weight as possible so you can run with endurance. And sin clings closely. It's going to hamper your walk. It's going to hamper your, your run. So, you know, I've seen guys that are training for, uh, the fire department and for different things in military or the police and they'll they'll be around the park and they'll have a weight on them and they're running with the weight because they're trying to build up their endurance they're trying to get stronger so that's one of the things Hebrews tells us happens with these things they make you stronger as long as you deal with them by faith but sin is not just a weight and it will make you stronger if you persevere through it and you by faith put it to death and you receive grace and mercy and you understand this but he's saying you want to get rid of this stuff so we are to examine ourselves and we are to set aside every weight and sin that clings so closely 
and ruined this race with endurance, a race that's set before us. And in the perfect example, not just these Old Testament saints, but then he points us to Jesus Christ. In verse 2, looking to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of God. And so we see, why did he do it? For our salvation. But he endured it. And he also, part of what he did was, he, we're to see that as an example of somebody who went through unjust suffering and also purposeful suffering. And he endured it for a joy set before him. And we're supposed to see the joy set before us, that our suffering in this life is not without purpose and is not without meaning, and it is working within us an eternal weight of glory. And verse 3 continues, you know, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, not just on the cross, but people. And people get to us too, but he endured, we can endure, um, so we're not to grow weary. And, and, and then what I want to do here too is one of my favorite things on the internet is the y'all translation of the Bible. You can look it up. And what it does is it, you can put it different translations, but anytime it has the plural you, it says y'all in English, which every translation I'll do, I don't understand why they don't do it because it, it helps us. So I'm going to say y'all when it's plural. Um, in y'alls, because you get to do y'alls, I don't know if we got Yankees watching, maybe they'll figure it out. Look it up, y'all, y'alls, y'allses, that kind of thing. In y'alls struggle against sin, y'all have not yet resisted to the point of shedding y'alls blood. Gosh, you kind of have to say it with that southern accent. He's talking to a church, though. He's talking to these people as a group. And so part of what happens in Hebrews is you're to see yourselves as the church, as a group of people, not just individuals who run around, you come together, and then you leave. But there's a connection with the church. And have y'all forgotten the exhortation that addresses y'all as sons? So then he starts talking about the discipline of God. And how we're all, y'all are all disciplined from the writer says, y'all are all disciplined by God, and you need to understand that it's teaching us something. And that these things that you go through, you must go through if you're loved by God. So you go through things sometimes to help your faith. Now, everybody goes through trials and struggles. But when a believer goes through trials and struggles, we're like, what's wrong with me? Why is he treating me like the world? Well, what he's doing with us is, in his fatherly love, he is training us as children. And we're to learn from these trials and tribulations that we go through. Verse 7 it's for discipline that y'all have to endure. And I just, when I say y'all, it just sounds, <laughs> it's the church. And it's you individually, but it's the church. For God is treating y'all as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then y'all are illegitimate children and not sons. And in verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we talked about this. One of the things that's happening is God is working with us and you're going through trials and struggles. You're running a race, trying to run it with endurance. 
then you're being disciplined as you go along. You learn how to get rid of some weights, learn how to get rid of some sin that's so easily ensnared so you can run with more endurance, you can be more effective in your faith. And what the fruit of this discipline is supposed to be for the believer is righteousness and what a peaceful fruit righteousness is. That our unrighteousness is what causes chaos. Our unrighteousness is what causes dysfunctional families, where dysfunction is just another word for sinful. And so we need to make sure that we ourselves personally are striving after righteousness. And so how are we supposed to do this? And so verse 12 is where the writer comes up and he says, So therefore, lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees. Now look this up in the original language in Greek and the way it word order matters in Greek that Yoda talks like he it's speaking Greek okay but he just does it in English you know words important first he says you know things like this and that's the way Greek is so what it says is drooping hands weak knees strengthen them you got these things so what are we supposed to be doing strengthen them lift those hands up Get moving, and then make straight paths for y'all's feet. Okay, that's that plural. Make straight paths for y'all's feet. Now that means now, so yeah, we're individually struggling. Our hands are dropped down. Our, our knees are weak. All right, so let's pull it together. And then make straight paths for y'all's feet. That means do good things. Do right things. Figure out the way of the Lord. Straight is the path. Narrow is the way. Let's try to you know, find out what does God require of us? What does he want of us? What does he desire of us? How are we supposed to behave as believers? If, we're, if he knows and has designed for us how to live our lives in such a way that we can navigate these storms with as little loss as possible, and even when we do suffer loss, it's for our good, then we're to listen to him. We are to, to pay attention to the things that he tells us, that we're to make straight paths. He says, make straight paths for y'all's feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Because if you're not going on straight paths, if you're following, um, you know, going in bad directions and not following the Lord, then what happens is those, er those problems that you have are going to get worse and you're going to get more damaged and you're going to be more injured. It's like if you're, if you're running and you're running on a trail and then I've seen people that will like run through the woods to avoid I, what can I only appear as if I look as if I have a COVID cloud around me sometimes at the park because they just <laughs> they go around. and But maybe they just like running through the woods. But I'm like, you're going to fall. You're going to trip. I'll be happy to hold my breath and move to the side, just yell or something. But people who just run through the woods, it's like <laughs> it's dangerous over there. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. And if that person already has an injury, it's just going to be worse. But we're supposed to make straight paths for feet so people can be healed. Then he says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Oh, that's something my world needs to hear. The Christian needs to hear. This doesn't mean you have to agree with everyone. This doesn't mean you have to say, boy, go forward and do exactly what you're doing. It just means that what we're supposed to be striving for is peace. And peace can be a tricky thing because in our founding documents, it is uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that comes from originally from John Locke who said it was life, liberty, and property. 
And so our founders are like, well, if we're going to make this whole property thing, you know, it's such a big thing. It's the pursuit of happiness, which is a weird thing, too. But it's not that you're guaranteed happiness, but you should be guaranteed the right to pursue it as you think is right. So we're supposed to strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace. That should be our first thing. How can I first strive for peace? How can I first empathize with a person? How can I first understand what they're trying to say? And how can I, if I'm going to be peaceful, one of the best ways to seek peace is to be able to absorb or blend with what's coming at you and then to be able to say, wait a minute, what are you doing? You need to rethink this and maybe we all are trying to get to the same place but you're going about it wrong and then there's some sort of reconciliation. Some people you can't do that with. But as much as we're able, we're to be striving for peace with everyone. In the church, particularly, striving for peace. So you can have peace, but some people are going to like, the only way I'm going to have peace is if you do what I say do. Maybe that thing is sinful. Or maybe that thing is pleasing to the Lord. So you can't have peace and reject truth. But peace should be something we're always striving for, because we're told to. And strive for holiness. So these are two things, peace and holiness. That should be our goal, striving for peace, striving for holiness. Because you're not going to see the Lord without holiness. And that's the word sanctification. The Holy Spirit comes into your life as a sanctifying influence. The Holy Spirit, the gospel comes into your life. You absorb it. You understand it. That produces a change in a person. That doesn't make you immediately sinless. It never makes us completely sinless in this life because we still struggle with the flesh. But we are to pursue not just happiness. Imagine if our founding document said, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. That should be founding document of the church. Life, liberty, in Christ. Life in Christ. And the pursuit of holiness. So we talked about holiness last time. And how holiness produces peace. And then in verse 15, there's a little bit of a transition in thought. Because what's happening here is he's talking about running a race. He says, you know, first of all, get yourself together. Come on, you can do this. I mean, it's like, it's like a coach telling you not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but I'm with you. I've got it. We can do this. There's a great cloud of witnesses that show you what you can do by faith. This is, we can get through this. We can do it together. You can do it with me. So lift those hands. Strengthen those feet. Make straight paths for everybody. Strive for peace. Strive for holiness. Pursue these things. And then... See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, as we first read this, as I first have read this, over and over again and studied it, what I've always seen and what I think most of the commentators I've read are seeing is the writer saying to you as an individual, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. And we're going to talk about what obtain the grace of God means, but he's telling the church that y'all are to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Y'all see to it that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God. So, I mean, that bothered me a little bit because I'm like, you don't obtain the grace is freely given. Grace, you can't earn it. You can't, you know, so what does it mean? 
So this is where original language stuff does help some. And so fail to obtain, fails to obtain is one word in the original language in Greek. And it means to be, to be devoid of. It means uh, to come short of. So see to it that no one lacks grace. See to it that no one lacks the grace of God, that nobody is devoid of the grace of God. You just told people to pursue holiness. And the very next thing is, you better make sure that nobody is devoid of grace. Gracelessness. So you make sure, and it means two things. One thing it means make sure everybody knows Christ. Make sure everybody knows the gospel. Make sure that everybody, make sure you're preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, praying the gospel, performing, living out the gospel so that when people see you, they glorify the Lord through your good works even. That you are a light that shines. But second, I think, to fail, make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's saying, make sure no one is graceless. You have to watch over your church. We are to watch over our church. There's people who are appointed as elders. There are people who are overseers. There are, there are deacons. There are uh, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children. We have an accountability one to another. And he's saying, so we need to work on holiness and you need to make sure nobody is graceless. So you pursue peace with everybody. You pursue holiness, which is a separateness, a differentness from the world, that is a godliness in our behavior, our thoughts, and these things. But holiness and grace, they have to go together in the life of the true Christian. Holiness and grace. If you're all grace and no holiness, it's just a perversion of something, and, and, it, and the world looks at that and knows it's wrong. But if you're all holiness, depending on how you structure that you can get a good following you can get a good following both ways tell the truth but a pursuit of holiness without grace must be only and can be only law and man-made rules okay holiness without any gracefulness without any grace without any forgiveness without any overlooking an offense without any saying i know i understand we're here with you we're gonna we're gonna struggle with you we're gonna start over again we're gonna get moving we're gonna love one another we're gonna do these things holiness without grace is going to lead only to law these are the rules this is how you do it this is how you look this is how you dress this is how you talk this is how you walk this is how you work this is how you everything man-made rules which is which is amazing if you think about it it's what the pharisees did as if the law of god's not hard enough what we do is we make other rules too so that people can see an externality of holiness without having to have an actual internality of holiness because it's easy to look good for some people it's easy to make your children look good if you're mean enough to them and strict enough to them. So a pursuit of holiness without grace must be only law and man-made rules and standards, and then that can only lead to judgment and condemnation. That's it. It's the only thing that can lead to it. God tells us, I've freed you from law. But what do we do? Laws. Rules regulations so it either leads to judgment and condemnation or self-justification and self-satisfaction 
which also only eventually leads to self-condemnation because nobody can stand up to their rules and their laws enough. And if they convince themselves that they have, you get a big problem. But the pursuit of holiness without grace makes people graceless. I mean, by definition, pursuing holiness without grace makes you graceless, legalistic, and moralistic. It is conformity to a loveless religion that turns you into mean people. All in the name of Jesus Christ. And so who wants to be around Jesus Christ if he's like that? And what the world is currently doing, um, if I define the world by the things I hear people saying and the things the media says and the things politicians say against one another, um, the church has nothing but mean people. Look what they did. Look what they said. Look how they acted. I don't have to give you examples. We do the same thing with them. Because it's not one Christian who claims the name of Christ, who stands up and says blasphemy, is then taken as the representative of all Christians and listen to how bad they are. That's just the way it's going to work. There's nothing you can do about it. But if it's you, and you end up being the person that's like, you represent all Christians, then what you need to be able to say is, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am not your standard of righteousness. I am... I am a sinner saved by grace. You better make sure you live that out so when people talk about you, that's what they know about you. And we all fall short of that. But we have to remember we're to pursue holiness, but you also have to be gracious in the midst of that. Otherwise, you set yourself up for nothing but failure, and you'll beat yourself up. You'll beat your children up. You'll beat your parents up. You'll beat everybody up, and you'll just be mean. And Jesus was not like that. I don't know how Jesus walked through the world, if you think about it. Sinless. And I guess my problem with it is if I think of a person walking sinlessly through the world, I can only see sinful responses to the world. A sinless response to the world is a Christ-like response to the world, and he's gentle and lowly, and he loves to give grace, and he loves to give mercy, and he, he, he gave himself for us. But there will be a day when that's it, and, and out of love and mercy, justice will have to prevail and then it's going to be too late and so the true heart of a Christian should be sincere sorrow over the lost so think of if you're a parent think of your child and they don't believe and they're going to hell does that bother you how would you pray for that person how do you ask God to be with that person would you possibly consider giving yourself over to hell forever to save that person? And then recognize the fact that we don't love our child nearly as much as God loves the world, and we should be loving our neighbor in that same way. And then we begin to approach what it's like to love God and love our neighbor in a way that we're called to. And then you can start striving for holiness. Because a holiness that loves the, the world in that way, 
a holiness that desires people to be repentant, a holiness that desires people to see the light, is a holiness that recognizes the fact that if, if behavior is what does it, then we're all going to hell, and our only hope is that in Jesus Christ. So we're to pursue holiness and peace, recognizing Jesus Christ was necessary because of our inability to be morally perfect, and therefore we must cling to grace and be quick to extend grace. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, 15, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, 16. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, so how much more should we sympathize with the weaknesses of others, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you're not going to a throne of grace in your time of need, your holiness and perfection and righteousness is not going to help you. It's the grace of God that's going to be there. It's not going to be, did I wear the right clothes? Did I give the right money? Did I go to the right church? Did I, did I do, you know, whatever your checklist is of things that make you right and holy that's unbiblical. In your time of need, what you're going to need is grace. You need a throne of grace. You need somebody you can go to, and you know it. When you're going to your Father in heaven, you don't, sometimes we do, but we are very wrong to do it. God, I need your help. I am so good, I am so awesome, I've done so much, but we'll do that. I've done all this for you, I've done all this for you. And it's like, and you see that in the scriptures and stuff, and it's like, you're coming to me in the wrong place. Don't come to God with your hands full of things and saying, you owe me, you owe me. You go to God just saying, here I am, yet still a poor sinner. You gave yourself for me when I was yet a sinner. You died for sinners while they were yet rebellious against you. Here I am again, living in rebellion against you. I just need your help. I just need your mercy. I just need you, Daddy. Are you my Daddy or not? And that's what you've got to come to terms with. Is he your father or not? Because if he is your father, you need to listen to him. Because <laughs> that's that balance. You don't just be the prodigal son and then come home and get refilled for money so you can go spend on prostitutes. You, you come home repentant. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit within us, but that's because of grace that's given to us. We have a throne of grace that we're able to go to, and it's a throne because he's in control and he's, he's God and he's the king. So grace is not to be a thing that's a, that's a thinly veiled excuse for sin. Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Should we sin so that grace should abound? He says, God forbid that it should ever be so. No. Pursue holiness. So why? It's because anything else turns us away from God and from his grace and it opens up us to attacks of Satan, to attacks of the world, and God knows what's best and right for us. And he goes on as he's talking about you know, back in um, chapter t chapter 12, verse 15. I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 12, verse 15. He says, you know, see to it one that nobody fails to obtain. So these are like things that um, he says, 
well, let me just read this next part and you'll see what I'm saying. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. So what he's doing in these little, this passage right here, he's got four things actually he's rooting out. He tells us to root out. Root out gracelessness. And then root out this um, root of bitterness. And the root of bitterness, the word resentfulness, is big, so uh, victimhood, defensiveness, these things taking root, you have to be careful of that. So if you ever had clover or some kind of vine in your yard, I've got this clover stuff that and, you, know, you keep pulling it up, and then what you realize, it's like there's a network of roots all through my yard, and it just springs up. At least it's green, so I'm like, all right, who says it has to be grass, you know? So the root of bitterness is like that in the church. People who don't like the discipline of the Lord and they rebel against God and they become a root of bitterness in the church. Um, I don't know. All sorts of things. We know. And you got to watch it. Y'all watch it among yourselves. Watch one another because a root of bitterness can get in there and it spreads. So you get Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 14. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of y'all an evil, unbelieving heart leading y'all to fall away from the living God. Now that made me wonder as I'm reading it if that's plural or singular. This is where I wish I had access to my Greek Bible right there. That's interesting. But be careful, lest there be any in any of, that has to be plural, y'all, an evil, unbelieving heart leading, leading y'all. It's got to be y'all again, y'all to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're to take care, lest there becomes this within our church. And in Hebrews 10, beginning in 22, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Remember, this is all about endurance. This is all about not falling away. This is all about persevering. 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was made holy, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These things are true too. You teach grace, you teach holiness, and we also watch out for one another because if somebody doesn't have faith, there's nothing but vengeance left. 
So we need to make sure that even the people in our church know the gospel. They're truly converted and truly saved, and that is an understanding of holiness and grace. As we talk about this root of bitterness, look at 2 Timothy 2. So you just go left a few pages. Second Timothy chapter two verse sixteen. Avoid irreverent babble. Okay, avoid irreverent babble. Uh, babelos. That's the word for irreverent. It means worldliness. It means um, godlessness. Avoid that kind of talk, that kind of babble, this irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So the way we talk as if we're of this world, the way we babble on and on as if there is no God, as if there is no hope, as if there is no gospel to be proclaimed, as if everything depends on the rise and fall of politics, everything depends on the rise and fall of whether we're being persecuted or not persecuted, or or whether people are watching the right TV shows or whatever it is. And we start to have this irreverent babble. Or maybe all we do is talk about sex and football and food and possessions and all this sort of stuff. We have to be careful and to avoid it because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene among them or Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection's already happened. And they're upsetting the faith of many. So there's, there's this bad theology that works itself out in here too. But irreverent babble, it, can, it spreads like gangrene, dead tissue that's caused by a lack of blood flow, according to my Google search, my DuckDuckGo search. And if it's not, it spreads, you have to cut your arm off. It can, it can kill you. thought about getting Rick up to explain what gangrene does, but I don't really want to know. I know it's nasty and it's bad and it can spread. And so he's saying, we watch over ourselves. And back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Sexual immorality, why does he bring that up there? I just think it, it's, a, it's a common malady of people. It's uh, sexual immorality. We're supposed to, it's, it's unholiness, um, that no one is sexually immoral. So how do we do that? How do we make sure no one's sexually immoral? And really, it's just doing life together, being with one another, holding one another accountable, trying to, to just, you know, be in the Word, stay in the Word, praying for one another in these things. And then, or unholy like Esau, who sold him his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sold it with tears. And so he uses Esau, and if you want to look it up sometimes, it's Genesis chapter 25, and it's really verses 24 through 34 tells a story. But Esau is just this guy that um, 
he's very hairy. <laughs> I don't know if that had anything to do with anything or not, but he just he just was. It comes later in the story when his brother, younger brother Jacob begins to uh, uh, deceive his father to steal the blessing. Um, but Esau is the older brother. He's just a, a, a worldly guy. He had no concerns for anything but what was in front of him. He loved to hunt. Nothing inherently wrong with hunting, except this guy's all he cared about. All he cared about was his stomach. He gets real hungry one day. He's got Jacob's over there cooking some of that red stuff, cooking some lentil stew, and he's got it going. And it's all, and Jacob, his brother, he's just a, he's called Yachav. He's the heel grabber, the supplanter. He's just always conniving. Okay? You got this big brother that's going to get everything, and you got Jacob that's got the brains, but he's also got a, a heart that just wants to take everything. And here comes old Esau. He's like, I'm starving to death. I'm starving to death. Give me some of that red stuff. And so they nickname him Red after that. That's what Edom means. Esau kind of means like hairy. So he's like Big Red or something like that. And he won't give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob's like, I don't know. I don't want to add to it too much. But I can just kind of see him. Mm, mm, this is good stuff. I'm starving to death, man. Sell me your birthright and you can have it. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me! But the, I'm, what good? He says, "What good is my birthright when I'm about to die?" He's about to die. You ever felt like that? I mean, that's I noticed that a lot of times our things aren't what we want; it's always what we need. And so here he is. He's like, you know, I'm gonna die. So he sells him his birthright. Says, "The birthright is yours if you just let me eat." And so he eats a little bit of something for a problem in the moment, and he gives it all away. And he says, that's what you're in danger of doing, church. A little bit of suffering, because the sufferings of this world not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. And some of you are thinking about giving it all away and just leaving. And you can't be like that. You have to have faith. You have to keep going. You can't be like Esau. You have to have the bigger picture. You have to walk by faith, not by sight. You walk in the spirit, not the flesh. The flesh says, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm done. Bye, church. And here's the, the interesting thing about our time. You can say bye, church, and still go to another church. You can say bye, church, and sit there with your phone and watch church. You can say bye, church, and there's a thousand things. But in your heart, God's <laughs> That's not how this works. There are good reasons to leave a church. But sometimes you're leaving Christ and you're just changing locations because you don't want to deal with difficulties. And you're fleeing discipline is what happens from our Father. It's like, you, you, you know, that Mayberry episodes. Those Opie does some kind of problem. I'm running away. Off he goes. You know, and that's what we do. And he's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't let hardship, don't let difficulties, don't let trials, don't let persecution, don't let the difficulties of this life cause you to abandon Christ like Esau. And you can see the story and see how he did it just for a momentary What? And then later he felt bad about it and was pleading with him when he got cheated out of the blessing too. He's like, oh, fathers are not a blessing for me. And he's like, and you've, yeah. you know. And Esau could have sought forgiveness and may have and would have been forgiven by God and his father, but he, but he missed out. 
because of the way his heart was, and we have to make sure we're not like that. So we're to pursue holiness. We're to make sure everybody obtains this grace. You got to be careful about resentment. You got to be careful about you know not just personal resentment, but being resentful of how other people have treated you or what they're doing or not doing, how they're living up to not living up to your holiness codes. We have to avoid sexual immorality. Be careful of that. Watch for that in your own hearts. And be careful about worldliness and worldly talk and worldly behavior. Because God wants to hold us close and he says, this is the only place their salvation is in me. So let's pray. Father God, I don't get all this. We don't get all this. It's hard to know how to do these things, Lord. So thank you for the church. We pray that you'll help us to encourage one another, that we will pray for one another, that we will seek to be kind to one another, forgiving to one another, and that we would be lights in the world and we would seek peace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.